You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So we begin a new series today called, Do You See What I See? And we are going to progressively walk through the Christmas story and look at how the characters, those who were a part of the story, quite possibly could have seen what was going on as they wrestled with the realities that were at stake there. And so, of course, we're starting with Joseph today, as you saw portrayed, and looking at the Christmas story through his lens. What, what did Joseph see? And this, this thing called the birth of Christ is often referred to as the incarnation. And it's what Christmas truly is all about, that God comes to us by being one of us. Jesus fully human, but also fully God at the same time. And and what could that have been like for Joseph and for Mary, as we'll look at here in just a couple weeks. So if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter one, which is where we'll start, verses 18 through 23. And I will put this up on the screen as we always do and read it to you. And as we do so, as we consider this passage together, I think what we're gonna see is some powerful similarities with how Jesus comes into Joseph's life and what it means for Jesus to come into our lives. And that's where we'll be going this morning. So here is our passage. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus So there is so much in this story, and let's begin to peel back the layers. And even with this first verse, verse 18 that we just read, it is a verse pregnant with meaning, and pun intended, right? There is so much here. It tells us they were pledged to be married, which is, for most of us, probably completely out of our frame of reference. What what does that mean? So they were engaged. No, this is so much more than an engagement. Because you see, in that culture, marriages were arranged. And typically, they were initiated by the parents of the groom. They would choose a a woman for their son to marry, 
And then the families would meet, would talk through that. Sometimes there were some very formal arrangements. Sometimes there were gifts exchanged. But at the end of the day, then, they entered into a one-year time known as a betrothal that had a very significant commitment to it. It was basically considered to be marriage without the sex and without living together. But otherwise, you were considered to be husband and wife until the actual marriage ceremony a year later. So now let's enter the story a little bit. We know where this took place. It took place in Nazareth. Some years ago when I was in Israel, we saw Nazareth from a distance, but we did not go into it. Probably for many of the reasons people back then didn't go to Nazareth. It was a remote, rural, small, obscure, backwater little village. Scholars believe it had anywhere from a couple dozen people to maybe a hundred people, but there was only one well there, so it couldn't support a very large population. So it was this small, rural, little town that probably most people had never heard of and probably the majority had never visited or been to. Why would you? What reason was there to go there? And yet this is exactly where the God of the universe chose to become one of us. And so as we think about this small town story, It just makes me wonder, as we wonder what Joseph could have saw, when did he see Mary? Because in a town that small, presumably their families would have grown up together. So, did he have a crush on her? Had he always had a crush on her? Because it was an arranged marriage, had he never even considered that she might someday be his wife? We don't know, but this is what we do know, was that they were betrothed to one another. They were considered married in every way, and the only way to break that commitment was through a divorce. And this is what we also know, is that Mary is pregnant. And it says that happened before they came together, which is another way of saying they didn't have sex together. This was before they were physically together as husband and wife, sexually together, She's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And to me, that's always rather amusing to me, the way that's written. She was found to be pregnant. So how did, how did that happen? How'd she get pregnant? Well, bless my buttons, she's pregnant. How does that work? Well, people back then knew how that worked, just like we do. And so now what this means is a crisis for Mary and Joseph. Because in that culture, a single, unwed, pregnant woman was now at risk. Because according to the law, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 22, she could lose her life for this. She could be stoned to death. And there are some who wrestle with, okay, that was during Roman occupation in that point in history. And there are some scholars who maintain that the Romans didn't allow the Jews to stone people. But even if that was the case, and I personally don't think it was, I think those things did happen. And what we do know is history does record that in rural, small town, backwater villages like Nazareth, stonings did happen. And it is very possible, likely, that her life was now at risk, but there was more going on there as we look at this through Joseph's lens and even Mary's. This was an honor-shame culture. 
And again, many of us don't have a frame of reference for that. But what keeps you up at night, what you worry about, what you lose sleep over is doing anything that would bring shame to you, to your family, or to your community. And now because this has happened, presumably, in the eyes of everyone, Mary and Joseph have just done all three. They have brought shame on themselves. That shame now reaches to their families and it reverberates through the community. And so, how did all this work? And again, let's think about this and look at this through Joseph's lens. What did he see? He sees a woman who he was pledged to be married to, who he was trusting with his heart and his life, who has now betrayed him. Can you imagine how that conversation went when Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Would you really believe that? He would be no more inclined to believe that than any of us would be to believe that today. That's not how people get pregnant. That's not how women get pregnant. That happens one way, through sex, not through the Spirit. And so what is Joseph to do? And Zach captured some of the tension there in what we saw in his monologue to start our time together in the Word. He's really got three options. One, he can accuse her publicly and therefore divorce her publicly. And in his pain and in his feelings of betrayal and distrust, he has every reason to do that. And if he does, she could quite possibly lose her life through stoning as a result. Option number two is he still could divorce her, but he could do so quietly. In doing that, he actually saves her life because there won't be a public accusation made. But then he and probably everyone in the village is having to live with these lingering, enduring questions. Why would she do what she did? How could she have done this to Joseph? And Joseph would spend the rest of his life, presumably alone, in pain, wrestling with this. Maybe he marries again, but regardless, he's got to live with, how could she do this to me? Or, he actually does marry her. And if he does, for the rest of his life, he will be considered a fool with an illegitimate son and a wife who was unfaithful to him. How would you like to be that person? So what is he supposed to do? Well, the passage tells us what he was going to do, and it says he was faithful to the law, which in other translations, it also says he was righteous. He was obedient to God. And so he's gonna choose option two. He's gonna divorce her quietly. He's going to quite literally save her life and even assume some of her shame in the uncertainty and the questions and the gossip that would follow. But he's gonna be obedient to what the word of God says. What he does or is really going to do here is noble. He, he's going to save her life when he doesn't have to and assume some shame and guilt that he doesn't have to in order to be obedient to, to what God says in his word. And then the angel appears to him. And what is the first thing the angel says? 
You can answer the next question with that answer. What is the most repeated command in all of scripture? Do not fear. Far and away, hands down, the most repeated command in all of scripture. Why? Because we tend to fear. And does he have legitimate reason to fear? Absolutely he does. Because this is a big ask. This is an extraordinary ask. Because if he marries her, yes, he will be standing between her and potential death through stoning, so he saves her life, but he now fully assumes her shame. And all the gossip and all the perceptions and all the stigma that's gonna come with marrying her under these circumstances. Because you know what? People were good at math then just like they are now. She is going to begin to show in her pregnancy and they're gonna go, hey, they're not married yet. How does that work? Oh, she's an adulterer or they were unfaithful to their God by doing this together. And all of his relationships are forever going to change. Imagine, and we don't know, but we can imagine what was it like for her parents and his, their families? What are they supposed to believe in all this? And yet, what does he do? He marries Mary because God told him to. But could it be because he also heard from the angel who this was going to be? Jesus. My friends, we know from history that when this took place, there was this incredible messianic fervor that there were all these many revolts led by people against the Roman Empire who said, I am the one, I am the Messiah, I am the chosen one. And they would, re- they would lead rebellions and revolts and they would get some momentum and then Rome would crush them. But what pervaded all that was this aching desire to be free of Roman occupation. It was horrible. And people were longing for and looking for a political Messiah And this angel comes to Joseph and says, oh, we're gonna do better than that. This Messiah isn't going to save you from Rome. He's gonna save you and his people from their sins. And then this quote out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, is lifted out by the angel and given to Joseph in this dream. This is who this child is going to be. And you know, I'm always surprised by the awareness of sin in our culture, despite the fact that we continue to move further and further away from being a Judeo-Christian culture and society, there's still a pretty widespread understanding of what sin is. My family and I um, started this free t- trial of Disney Plus. Some of you already have that or are aware of it. We, you know, it was a seven-day free trial, so we thought, hey, why not? So we turned it on and there's a Star Wars spin-off series called The Mandalorian that's on there that I kind of like. And we were watching some of the chapters, and guess what one of the series titles was with no context and no explanation but the story. It was called The Sin. Now, I would submit to you, my friends, that there are more than Christians and Muslims who have definitions for sin who are watching that show and absolutely understand what that word means. So many of us intuitively 
understand without explanation the reality that this world is broken and that we are broken people. Case in point, I have an extended family member who I'm very close to who isn't a Jesus follower who for years has been in therapy and I want you to understand something right out of the gate. I think therapy is enormously valuable. I think there are probably all seasons at some point we will walk through in our lives where sitting down with a believing, wise, gifted Christian therapist is profoundly wise and impactful and necessary. They can give us tools to help us when we're stuck and to grow. You don't have to have that to grow, but I think it can be very, very helpful. So please understand how highly I regard therapy. But this family member who has been in therapy for years allowed with me this last week, you know, I know that there's something wrong with me. And I've been in therapy for years and it's just not doing it. It's not getting me where I want to go. And God's word would declare that's because that's not a deep enough change. There is a brokenness and a selfishness called sin that runs through all of us apart from right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. We need a new heart. We need to be transformed from the inside out. The only way that happens is through a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ in your life and mine. But instead, we think that if we bury ourselves in our job or our work, that will do it. Or we lean on therapy, that will do it. Or if we just had more money, that will do it. Or if we had more success, that would do it. Or if we just had more significant relationships in our life, that would do it. If our health was better, that would do it. If we lost this amount of weight, that would do it. You know, we put all these things in this place of this brokenness and this ache and this sense of knowing things are not right and I'm not right and that is right apart from Jesus. We need to be saved from our sins because this is a broken world with broken people in it. Man, wouldn't it be nice if someone just did something about that? They have. God has. It starts with Christmas. It ends with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and it is finished when Jesus one day we'll come back and there'll be this enormous wedding celebration of his bride, his church, and he is our groom. And it will truly be done. And we long and look forward to that day. But the way Jesus enters this broken world, enters Joseph's life, is very similar to the way he enters our lives. And that's what I'd like us to briefly look at. Letting Jesus in takes courage. It will take courage on my part and yours. Many of you know my story, but years ago, when I was a high school student, I went to this young life camp um, the summer of my freshman year, and I knew it was a Christian camp. I knew they'd talk about this Jesus stuff. I wasn't going there for that, but the talks that the speaker that week would give felt like they were going directly to me. I felt like he was reading my mail. Everything he talked about, reading my email, reading my text, is that a little more relevant? 
but he knew me, and he knew what was going on in my life. How did he know that? Well, he didn't. That was the Holy Spirit. That was God himself speaking to me, inviting me into right relationship with him. And so on the final night of this camp, at this last talk, they said, we want you to stand up if you want to receive Jesus Christ and follow him with your life. And I knew exactly what that meant. Now, in fairness, you can receive Jesus without standing up in a crowd. But for me to stand up in that crowd meant that every single relationship in my life was going to change, including my relationship with all my friends there. What would they think? What would they think about me standing up and saying I wanted to follow Jesus? But even more importantly to me, what would my family think? Because this would change my relationships with my unbelieving family forever. And it did. And it has. And therefore, to follow Jesus, to let Jesus into your life, will cost you. Just like it took courage for Joseph to choose to marry Mary under those conditions, to believe what the angel said, to believe what Mary was saying, brought with it a cost to him changed every relationship in his life and her life too for that matter they would for always hear the whispers have people wonder when they returned to Nazareth many years later after Jesus was born I wonder what people said because people don't forget especially in a small town what was daily life like for them I'm sure there was a cost to that but when you and I choose to let Jesus in it's so important for us to understand and many of you intuitively get this you don't add Jesus to your life he is your life so therefore everything will change in your life your priorities your values your time your resources why do we ask us collectively to give of our time and our relationships and our resources, our money around here, unapologetically, because they don't belong to us. They belong to God. Because we have different priorities. But you'll not only change with your resources, you will change with your relationships. One of the first places I felt the change in my family was I had an expanded family now. People like you became my family. And so therefore, I begin to necessarily spend a lot of time with that family. I begin to serve and get involved in um, the life of the church and worshiping like you are here. Um, we didn't have podcasts back then for our online community who's li- going to be listening to this, but I was involved and engaged in every way I could, and my family, immediate family, didn't like that. Then came the criticism of, well, why are you spending so much time at the church? Why are you so involved with this? Why is now some of your money going there? Because they they just didn't understand. But there was a cost to this new relationship in my life, and it was totally worth it. And I would submit to you, with all that it cost Joseph to marry Mary, it was totally worth it to him. And now we begin to see why God chose this man to be the earthly father to his son. And the amazing thing is, is that in all this change, 
it'll impact every part of your life. Things that you didn't care about anymore, you'll now begin to care about. You'll want to be part of an outreach like we're doing here with Advent Conspiracy. And I've had people say who haven't quite understood Advent Conspiracy in previous years, well, hey, my kids don't go to East Gresham Elementary. I don't live in this neighborhood. Yeah, me too. I don't live in this neighborhood and my kids don't go or did not go, rather. They're all young adults now to East Gresham Elementary. But we help anyway because this is our community. Because God has given us resources, and when there's a need and we can do something about it, in Jesus' name, we're going to do something about it. That's why we do Advent Conspiracy. But everything begins to change, and there's a cost with that, because following Jesus means you need to trust and obey him, and that's exactly what Joseph did. He didn't wake up the next morning, assumably, presumably, and say, oh man, that was some bad pizza I ate last night. What the heck was that dream about? I mean, the way this is written, everything we're told here is this was immediate trust and obedience. He took Mary home and he married her in the face of great fear. And I think it's important for us to understand that. He had reason to be afraid because of what this was going to mean for the rest of his life. And it's so important for us to remember, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is what you do in the face of fear, which begs the question of you and me. What are you afraid of this morning? How is God asking you to trust and obey him and you are scared legitimately to do so? There's some things in my life I could put my finger on with that. And what's interesting is what we're afraid of is often revealed in crisis. And again, we don't know all of what Joseph's fears were, but this is what we do know. In the face of that fear, he refused to idolize his security. He refused to idolize what other people thought of him. He refused to idolize his comfort. Instead, he chose to trust and obey. And what he does here is so remarkable. And once again, we begin to appreciate not only the profound example of faith he is for you and me, because I think oftentimes he gets overlooked in the Christmas story, but also, though, why God chose this man to be the father, the adopted father to his, his son because he saves Mary's life when he didn't have to. He stands between her and getting stoned to death and in doing so he takes her shame upon himself. He stands in the gap for her and he marries her and in doing so he saves her life does that sound like anyone we know? Is there someone who stands between us and certain spiritual death, who takes on when he doesn't have to our shame, our guilt, our sin, in order to save our lives? Doesn't this Joseph point to a greater Joseph, to the greatest Joseph? 
Isn't that what Jesus has done for you and me? Doesn't his very name, which means God saves, underscore the reality that the only way to find forgiveness for your brokenness, your sin and mine, and then to have that sin removed and that shame removed, it's through right relationship with Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Catch this, this is so amazing. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Whose shame was that? Our shame, my shame, and your shame. This amazing God, at incredible cost to himself, stands between you and me and death. He takes on our shame and removes that from us and instead gives us his righteousness, his power for right living, when he didn't have to give us any of that. And it says he did that joyfully out of his love for us. My friends, what what do you do with a God who will do that for you? You worship him. You love him. You follow him because you can trust him. Even in the face of fear, even when you're scared, Even when you don't know how it's going to work out, you can choose to trust and obey him anyway. And that's the God we worship here this morning. Amen. I hope you believe that because it is true. Because God doesn't just save us from something. He also saves us to something. And I'd like to leave you with these words words out of Titus um, in the New Testament that talks about our old identity and our new one. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's our present and that's our future. And so I want to pray his blessing over us as we go from here and as we prepare to do so. Once again, if you're a guest with us, we would love to meet you at Next, just down the hallway. But I want to pray that God would help us believe what he says about us and then go live that out. Lord, thank you that you are the God who saves us from sin, from eternal separation of you, from a life of brokenness, from a life of selfishness, and you save us too, a life of blessing, a life of hope, a life of joy, a life with a future and a present. And God, as we go from here, would we remember that? Would we believe that? And would we live that? Help us to have courage, whatever the cost, to trust and obey you and follow you because of what you have done for us. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,
Amen. So go and live for him. And we hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.